Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Well, good morning. I uh, hope you're enjoying this remote version of uh, uh, worship this morning as we gather together and uh, we're wrapping up this series called Empowered. And today we're talking about empowered to embrace diversity. And, uh, and so I, I just want to kind of kick off uh, by reading uh, for you this passage from the book of Acts that I think is so powerful. It takes place over in Acts 17. And uh, uh, it's something familiar to you. Uh, it's Paul and his uh, sermon at the Areopagus. And, uh, and so just to take a listen, uh, beginning in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocate, advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him, then they took him, and they brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus. And there they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Uh, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked caref carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far away from any one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. And some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Demarius and a number of others. So, so there's this fantastic thing that is unfolding. Paul in the city of Athens. And so I just want to remind and kind of level set a couple of things. First, 
we've been really thinking in this series about what it means for us to stop looking around, that we are empowered from on high and we are to look up. And so we've been talking about and going through and talking again and again about uh, that passage in Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. And the need to look up where there is no revelation, as the Hebrew says it, uh, much more specifically uh, and openly. And we've talked about uh, in the message, that passage is interpreted this way. If people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. And I think when we begin to think about the fact that we are all looking up together, it, it calls my attention back to Ephesians 4. For there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so here we are. We're in a period of time in this, this crazy cycle of election, the COVID stuff that's going on and uh, the racial tension that's going on and all the social issues that are happening. Uh, and you and I are a part of this body of Christ. We're intergenerational, the youngest of us to the oldest of us. We are one body. We serve one Lord. The ones who are more conservative, the ones who are more progressive, the ones who identify with one party, ones who identify with the other. And, and as we talk today about what it means to embrace diversity and that we are empowered, in fact, to embrace diversity, I think it matters that we stop and we really contemplate. We were given a new command. We were given a new command to love each other. In fact, it means that if we're going to really come together, if we're going to join in unity together, it's because we surrender our opinions, our attitudes, our politics, our anger, our fear, our worry, our uncertainty, our impatience. And we lay it at the feet of this new command that we've been given to love one another. As Christ loved us, we are to love one another. It, 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 it makes, it's just so important. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for we are all baptized by one spirit and to form, and we form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. And I just want to encourage you. It's going to take a lot of strength, maturity, depth, trust to believe that whatever happens in these next few weeks, God is in control. And we're going to love God and we're going to love each other. And we're not going to let go. We're not going to give in to our worry or our fear or even our opinions. We're going to trust that in all things, God works for the good. And we're going to celebrate that. Merriam-Webster defines diversity as the condition of having or being composed of differing elements. Variety, especially the inclusion of different types of people, such as people of different races or cultures in a group or an organization. It's pretty straightforward, the idea and understanding of diversity. And the fact that our culture has taken that simple idea and, and, and has turned it into something that has so many controversial overtones, um, it just kind of talks about, I think, so much what's going on in our world and in our culture. I'm guessing that even when I entitled this sermon and you saw embracing uh, the, you know, the, the reality of diversity, are empowered to embrace diversity, that that probably, you know, for some of us, we're like, oh, I wonder what this is going to be about. I wonder what, 
Dave's going to talk about today. But this is a core value of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is incredibly diverse and that it embraces that diversity, that we are empowered to love people who are not at all like us. So I want you to just think about that. I, I want you to think about the reality that, that here in the first century, there is a, a, a group of people who have decided, a grassroots movement, and they've decided that, that they're going to embrace and talk about what it means to love everybody and embrace diversity. Now, remember, they're speaking this stuff 21 centuries ago into a world that's built on racial prejudice. It's built on the economic benefits of slavery. It's built on unfair taxation of the poor. It's built on strict economic class structures. It's built on limited education, and that's only for the wealthy, and then most often only for the men who were wealthy. Uh, where gender bias is not only a part of the culture, but it's a part of the law. They're speaking this into a culture, into a place where the strongest and most powerful get to decide what justice means. And into that world comes Jesus Christ, and he calls this group of people, this, this group of folks who are disenfranchised, who have no power, who have no connection, he calls this group of people together, and he asks them to go be yeast in the world to go allow their lives and their beliefs and their ability to love people of great diversity, allow that to be the yeast that allows, allows life to rise and allows uh, a, a culture to rise and allows love to rise and allows uh, uh, hope to rise. And, and so he sends them out to go be these people. And the early church, this New Testament church, is built around this idea. The world understand this, the world had never, ever seen a group of diverse people getting along with one another and loving each other and celebrating each other. And that's why thousands were coming to the church, that thousands were being converted to Christianity because it, it was this incredible loving place that no one, there's not another thing like it. There's nowhere else on earth. They'd never seen anything like that, not in Rome, not in Greece, uh, not in Israel. Nowhere had anyone ever seen places and people coming together. So Paul writes about it, and he talks about it over and over. In Galatians 3.20, he says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12.12, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ, for we were all baptized by one spirit as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I, am, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. And I, and I just wonder, I just think, we have so desired for us to be homogenous. We have so desired to believe that the kingdom of God is about people believing and thinking like I do, agreeing with me, agreeing with how I see everything. But the early church celebrated the diversity. They celebrated how God was creating the unity because we were looking up one head, one Lord, one God, one faith, one baptism. 
Colossians 3.11. Here, there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in us all. And that celebration, that reality, this, this incredible binding thing that holds us together. John, as he looks into heaven in the book of Revelation, he, he sees this and he writes these words, Revelation 7, 9, and 10. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. And they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. It's a vision of God's kingdom. It's alive on earth and it's wrapping up in the diversity of the planet in this incredible embrace of love. So as you think about that, you got to get your head into what is happening with Paul. Paul has gone to Athens and as he's arrived in Athens, he, he is arriving into a place that celebrates intellectual elitism. And so let's talk about that a little bit. The world into which Jesus came had evolved over the centuries uh, to become a place where the intellectual elite really ruled. Only the wealthiest were educated. The Greek philosophers often debated the merits of, of democracy versus aristocracy. Um, as you know, the Roman culture had adopted Greek culture and philosophy. Rome was a very Hellenistic culture. Uh, it held on to all of those ideals. And so in that great debate about democracy and aristocracy, um, if you want to go way back there, uh, Socrates, uh, that's why he drank the hemlock, because he believed in aristocracy. And the Greeks had decided that democracy was actually the better way. Uh, but democracy, as they understood it, was democracy of the few. Uh, there were only a few people who were highly enlightened and who deserved the opportunity to lead and deserved the opportunity uh, to be represented. And so uh, when you talk about ancient Rome, you talk about a place that's highly enlightened, trial by jury of your peers, uh, the right to vote, um, uh, a, a democracy where uh, they elected their leaders. Uh, all of that's true, except uh, only men uh, actually were educated and only men were allowed to vote. Uh, and so, uh, and only Roman citizens were allowed to participate in any kind of democracy. And so if you didn't fall into that spot of intellectual elitism, then democracy was not for you or about you. And you, in fact, had no voice in the culture whatsoever. And so it's into that sort of intellectual elitism that Paul has placed himself. Uh, the Hellenistic mind, uh, it sort of was a strange animal. Uh, it was rooted in reason, but it was full of superstition. And you find this kind of strange relationship between religion uh, and reason, uh, as between superstition and intellect, and the things bounce off one another. And so uh, they pursue their intellectualism until you trip over their superstition, or they pursue their superstition until it offends their intellectualism. Uh, a lot like we behave ourselves today in our culture and in our world. So today it wouldn't be unusual for someone to look at you or me and, and to say, I can't believe you believe in God. I can't believe you think the Bible is true. I can't believe you believe that God created everything. 
while they're rubbing uh, a crystal around their neck or consulting their horoscope. So we haven't gone that far uh, in we reflect very much that same idea. And so if you, if you stopped and you just thought about this philosophical center where everybody, in fact, <laughs> we're told in the passage in Acts that everybody just sits around and debates about intellectualism. And if you stopped and you thought about that just for a minute, um, you, you, you kind of get the idea that Paul now has made his way into Athens and uh, he, he's going to you know, really step into the space. And so a couple of things to know in background to this passage. Uh, six centuries earlier, there had been a terrible plague. And so um, the leaders of uh, Greece decided that the problem was that the gods had become angry. And so they needed to appease the gods in order to get the plague to stop. And so they decided what they would do is uh, they would build an altar and make sacrifices to the gods who were offended. And this is where the superstition and intellectualism kind of come together. And so uh, they understood that they probably needed to appease the gods. And they uh, then sat down intellectually and said, well, which God do we need to appease? And they realized they didn't know. They didn't know who was mad and they didn't know who was causing the problems. And so they devised a master plan. And what they decided to do was to build altars all over the area, all over the country, literally, uh, and particularly around Athens and, and, and the Acropolis. Um, uh, and they would, they would make those altars read to an unknown God. So whoever needs to be appeased, this altar is for you. And then they realized um, that they also didn't really know uh, what sacrifice the gods might want. And so they, again, intellectually figured out an experiment. And so they took sheep and they didn't feed them for a couple of weeks. And then they released them into a field full of fresh grass. And uh, they basically then prayed to their gods and said, select your own sheep. And so uh, the sheep that began to eat the grass, they assumed um, uh, were not set aside. But if a sheep, after not eating for two weeks, laid down in the grass, they assumed then that the gods had selected that sheep, and then they would take that sheep and sacrifice it to the unknown gods. Those altars over six centuries had deteriorated. And by the time Paul shows up in Athens in the first century, what they had done in pursuit of their intellectualism is they had gotten rid of most of those old altars, but their superstition dictated that they didn't get rid of all of them. In fact, what they did was they selected a few that were in key locations around the city and they restored those. And so those are the altars to which Paul is referring. He's stepping into this place and he goes now to the Areopagus. The Areopagus uh, was the place where the intellectuals gathered. It was a little bit like uh, the town council, the Supreme Court, um, Congress. It was all of that rolled into one. And uh, today, if you were to go to uh, Athens and you were go to ascend the hill where the Acropolis is, uh, perhaps you've been there. Um, if you're facing the Acropolis, you, 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 you enter it from the right side. You take the stairs all the way up. And finally arrive at the top and, 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 and you see the great temples that are there. And once you've uh, sort of examined and explored the top, you, you can start down the far side. So you kind of come down the left side. And as you descend down the hill on the other side, uh, uh, when you reach the bottom of the hill, if you look just off to your right, uh, you'll see the old marketplace. 
And, uh, and when you get to the very bottom of the hill, if you turn right and you go about a hundred yards, you'll arrive at, at a stone outcropping and you'll see some ancient stone steps there. Uh, you're not allowed to get on those. Uh, beside them has been built a, a set of steel stairs freestanding from the rock and you can climb those stairs and go to the top of that rock. And when you get on top of that rock, you are uh, looking down on the old marketplace, uh, the old Agora. And, and, uh, and you'll see when you get up there and you look down on the old marketplace, uh, a, a plaque and the plaque says, uh, this is the ancient meeting site of the Areopagus. Uh, this is the place where Paul uh, preached his sermon uh, from Acts 6 that we shared earlier. And so uh, I think it's so important that we stop and we realize that what Paul uh, is offering to us here is a clinic on embracing diversity. And I see six things that I think matter very significantly to you and I uh, as we think about the world that we live in and we think about where we are. Uh, number one, Paul fit in. He fit in. Uh, we're told that Paul immediately began to reason, even before he got to the Areopagus, he arrived at the synagogue and, and, and he didn't talk uh, a lot about Judaism and he didn't talk about Israel and he didn't talk about uh, a lot of the things that had to do with the Jewish law or the Ten Commandments, things that he has included in other sermons and other places. When he arrived in Athens and he went to the synagogue, he began to reason with them. He began to talk to them in their intellectual mindset, in their way of thinking. I think it's a lot like what it says in, the, in, in Acts 2, and we talked about it earlier. When they were empowered by the Holy Spirit, every person heard in their own language. You and I have been empowered to know how to speak within our culture. The issue is, do we want to? Do we desire to? Do we embrace diversity in such a way that we want to fit in? We want to allow the language of the gospel to adapt itself so that we are continually inviting people out of the culture and into the kingdom of God. But that takes patience and it takes intentionality. And, and Paul arrives and even before he goes to the Areopagus, he's already reasoning with them and speaking to them so that those people over at the synagogue, those people who are already beginning to believe in Jesus and becoming converted, uh, they, they are the ones that say, you know what, you need to share this with others. Other people need to hear what you're saying. I think you're speaking their language. And so I think it's super important Paul fit in. Number two, he challenged their thinking. The results were good. They listened as they heard him speak their language. In fact, they felt disturbed by the things he said. He's stirring something in them. He wasn't just speaking insider language. He wasn't saying things that make sense at church, but they don't make sense in the broader culture. He was speaking to them and challenging things that are very fundamental to the way they think, to the way they see the world, to, to where the hierarchy fits. And I don't know if you've observed this, but in our culture, in our world, people believe that we are the be-all to end-all. That, that human beings, what I want, what I think, what I feel, that's what it's all about. How we as human beings can make it all work. And Paul is, he's challenging their thinking at the very most fundamental levels. And I think that's what embracing diversity, it fits in, but it challenges thinking. It's speaking the language, but it's pushing 
for the gospel message and a worldview that's biblical. Number three, he worked with their understanding. He begins immediately to address something that would allow him to just jump right into their mindset. And so when he mentions to them, I see you are very religious. I noticed your altars to an unknown God. I love the way the King James puts it. That which you declare unknown, I now declare to you. He, he has an immediate movement into their understanding. It doesn't take a lot of building. It doesn't take a lot of background. He, he's found the leverage. He's found a way right into the conversation that they're already having, right into the discussion that is already moving inside of him and inside of their understanding. And so he, it reminds me, you know, when missionaries were trained, they were told, you know, how do you adapt the gospel? And, and you've probably heard this story. Uh, but there are places in Africa where the stomach is considered to be the center of all of the emotion. Here in the Western world, it's the heart. We talk about heart and feelings, but, but uh, there are cultures that consider the stomach to be the center of it all. And so, you know, missionaries quickly adapted and, you know, they, you didn't invite Jesus into your heart. You invited Jesus into your stomach. Uh, it's working and fitting in with the understanding of the people around us. Do we do that? Do we love people like that? Enough to fit in, uh, uh, enough to speak to them in their own understanding and challenge their thinking, uh, and then find ways that people relate. Number four, he had good content. Uh, listen to this. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything, rather he himself gives life and breath and everything else. I, I want you to imagine for a group of people who practiced this intellectualism, but also believed in the precarious nature of the gods, that the gods might do anything. Paul challenges them and challenges their understanding, and he has really good content. Listen, I want to tell you about a whole different worldview. I want to tell you about the God who created everything and who is not served by human hands, who doesn't need a single thing from human beings, but instead loves them and reaches to empower them. His strength is made perfect in their weakness. We're not trying to appease him, and he doesn't dwell in these temples made by human hands. Imagine sitting below the beautiful Acropolis with its ornate, breathtaking temples and saying these words. He doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands. And in some ways, it, it, it would shake everything they believed about the world. But it also had to be a tremendous hopeful relief. Imagine not living under the oppression of these precarious gods. Imagine not trying constantly to go to the temple and prepare something and do something and offer something and hope it was enough and hope it was good enough. And Paul has good content. And, and I wonder sometimes, as we try to fit in and, and we, we explore what it means to challenge thinking and we, we try to uh, work with the understanding of those around us, do we have good content? Is it fresh? Is it loving? Is it kind? Is it winsome? Do people want to, you know, it's called the gospel for a reason. Good news. When we approach someone, do we have good news? Is there good content? Is there something we're bringing that really challenges the depths of, Someone's, and that takes thinking and praying and seeking 
We're empowered to embrace diversity. We're empowered to speak this language. We're empowered to do this work. We're empowered to bridge these gaps. But we have to want to. We have to desire it. We have to seek it. Number five, he invited a change of heart. He gives this startling statement, and I think it's one we could all slow down and listen to today. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Do you believe that? As we are entering into this election cycle, do you believe that God has appointed the times and the nations that he is much, much bigger than the United States of America, like he was much, much bigger than ancient Greece or ancient Rome or, or Israel or, or Persia or Babylon or any of those other, Egypt, great kingdoms have come and gone. And, and Paul is speaking right into the heart of this thing. And he's saying to them, you realize, I know you think about, you know, Greece and Hellenistic thought and Rome now that's carrying on. But listen, I want to tell you, it's not about any of that. And God does it this way so that you and I would reach out to him in hope that is beyond politics and it's beyond who's in the White House and it's beyond this country. It's deeper and stronger. And, and, and in all things, God will work for the good. And he calls them to a genuine change of heart. And then after he talks to them about that, he says, and by the way, he's not, he's not captured in an object of silver or gold, or stone, and you might have gotten away with that for a while, but you're not going to get away with it anymore, because we are all, all of us, accountable to God. And God will hold us accountable for our lives, and for the journey we're on. It matters. It matters. It matters. And he invites them, I want you to change your heart. I want you to change your heart. I want you to confess your sins and receive forgiveness. I want you to be made new. I want you to be restored. I want you to be made whole. That's what it's all about, isn't it? I hope today as we really in just a moment now conclude that, that if you want to just bow your head and say, you know, God, I get so caught up and I bounce around between my intellectualism and my superstition but I know that you're God and I know that all life comes from you and I know you're in control. And even though sometimes I forget and I start to live like I don't know it, I want to slow down and I want to put you back where you belong. I want you to be Lord of my life and Lord of my heart and Lord of my mind and Lord of my spirit. And I don't want to be full of stress and anger I don't want to be divisive. There's one Lord, one faith, and this is where it begins. It begins in a change of heart in which each of us repent and we become obedient to God. We're going to pray in a couple minutes, and I'm going to invite you to pray that prayer. There is one last point to be made. He embraces the diversity of the results. We're told that 
two people by name are named here as coming to faith. One is a member of the Areopagus, and his name is Dionysius. And the other is a woman, and her name is Demarius, and there were some others. And I think that this is included in Luke's account for a very specific reason, because the results of Paul and his fitting in and his challenging their thinking and, and moving into their understanding uh, and, you know, uh, having good content and inviting them to have a change of heart, the results embrace the diversity. Dionysius is a member of the Areopagus. At any one time, there's only about 30 of those in all of Athens. That means that Dionysius is a well-connected, highly-placed politician. That is quite a conversion for a sermon there on the side of the hill. The other person mentioned is a woman named Demarius. We're told historically that due to the politics and gender politics specifically, that a woman who would have been at the Areopagus would have not been there for noble reasons that she was probably connected in some way to temple prostitution. And so here you have this high-placed, powerful male politician who is converted. And on the other end, you have a woman uh, who really serves in a very demeaning role who's being converted because that is the kingdom of God. And in Christ, there is no slaver, free Jew or Greek male or female well-placed politician, disenfranchised woman, they don't exist anymore. And I think Luke tells us the story to remind us of the power of the gospel. We're going to close. And I'm going to invite you to pray with me. And maybe God's speaking to you today. Maybe you haven't sensed or felt the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to change and to become genuinely new. We're told that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And maybe those are sins of commission. Maybe you've done something, said something, failed in some place in your life. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's, it's a kind of anger that is being fed underneath the service in these difficult trying times. Listen, we've been empowered. At least we have been offered empowerment. And I just want to invite you to bow your head and say a prayer with me. God, as we close out this series on empowerment, and we think about all of the ways in which you offer to empower our lives and our journeys, I'm asking you if you would hear our prayers. We come before you wherever we find ourselves on this Sunday morning, and we humble ourselves and we bow before you, and we confess to you our sins. We confess that we have not lived in the power of your Holy Spirit because we've operated our own kingdom, our own fiefdom. And Paul reminds us that there's only one kingdom, there's one God, and he leads and appoints. And I'm praying today that you would hear our prayer as we dismantle our individual little kingdoms and we humble ourselves. And we confess to you our sins. We confess our sins of commission, the ways in which we have failed and fallen short and been disobedient and sinful. We confess our sins of omission, 
things that we have not done that you have asked of us and places we have failed. We confess our sins of politics and pride and anger and divisiveness and gossip and slander. Would you make us new? Would you prepare us for what is to come? Would you bring healing to homes and families and hearts and lives? Would you empower us? Would you empower us to embrace diversity? Would you empower us to be made whole? Would you empower us to have hope and encouragement? Would you empower us to love those around us and to love you with all of our heart? We invite you to change us from the inside out and to lead us to where you desire us to be. As individuals, but collectively as Montrose Church and the greater church of Jesus Christ, may it be so. We pray it all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. God bless you. I'm praying for you as you move out into this week. Talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.